Hi, it's Alex here. Before we start, I just want to draw your attention to the Future of Film Summit, which is taking place online the 18th to 20th of November. This is going to be an interactive, digital-first experience unlike any other film event, featuring keynotes, panels, and integrated networking, all designed to empower storytellers and shape film's future. Find out more about the event and secure your place today at futureoffilm.live. That's futureoffilm.live. Hello and welcome to season four of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. Today's guest is the visionary storyteller Sam Barlow, whose work blends traditional filmmaking techniques with gaming mechanics to create new forms of interactive films. He is known largely for the pioneering works Her Story, that really reinvented the detective genre, and the Annapurna released Telling Lies, which is a hugely ambitious interactive thriller told from multiple points of view. In this conversation, we dig into Sam's creative process and explore his vision for the future of interactive filmmaking. In particular, how his work differs from the quotes traditional, if you can say traditional in this space, types of interactive filmmaking, such as Bandersnatch. We also touch on Sam's career and the business models and distribution strategies for this type of work. Sam is a deep thinker, there's no question about that, and a very articulate speaker about his craft. And the episode is densely packed with ideas, concepts, and strategies on not just interactive filmmaking, but I would say also the fundamentals of storytelling. And just to say, if you previously checked out this talk on Rebels of Storytelling, then this podcast version contains additional material not previously released. This episode was recorded as part of Rebels of Storytelling, which is a free video series you can watch now at futureoffilm.live. Rebels of Storytelling would not have been possible without the incredible support of Epic Games and Unreal Engine, who are pioneering the transformation of screen storytelling. We are also very proud to partner with Creative England's Creative Enterprise Programme, you can find out more about the Creative Enterprise program and the two new grant funds they have available for screen industry business planning post-COVID and to develop innovative new ideas, both at creativeengland.co.uk. If you are enjoying the show and want to discover more about the future of film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all four seasons of the podcast, explore our other free resources like Rebels of Storytelling, and download the free Future of Film report. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with storyteller Sam Barlow. So Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. So I'd just like to start uh, by asking about your work, Sam. Um, how do you how do you see yourself? Are you you straddle both interactivity and filmmaking? What, how do you how do you describe the work that you do? Uh, with great difficulty, usually. Um, I guess it sometimes depends on the audience. Um, because I think at its heart, what I'm doing certainly in the last couple of projects is taking uh, traditions of storytelling um, and specifically, you know, storytelling that involves film performance um, and bringing to that a lot of the fundamental game mechanics that we would kind of associate with more traditional video games. Um, like the, there is a large overlap between things like uh, Super Mario and Legend of Zelda and what I'm doing in terms of the freedom that the audience or player has 
to explore this thing, this 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 object. Um, and what makes my work unique is the thing we're exploring, rather than being uh, a, a 3D fantasy kingdom, uh, is video is video storytelling. Um, so you know, usually people use the phrase interactive movie um, or they go for like choose your own adventure because that's like the, the, the popular idea of what uh, interactive storytelling is. Um, and I guess uh, I've struggled with interactive movie because a lot of what is interesting about the work I'm doing is that it breaks the conventions of, of what a movie is in ways that I think are interesting, but it's important for me to distinguish between uh, the very mature form that is movie making, um, which you know has a certain shape to it. Uh, you know the the magic of cinema, what Hitchcock would call pure cinema, of uh, capturing performance and primarily of using editing and montage to tell a story visually. Um, a lot of that relies on the being uh, a very high level of control uh, on the part of the director or the editor to tell that story. Um, and what I'm really interested in is when you move into the digital digital domain, when you become essentially unbounded and when you have uh, a player who is uh, part of the experience is to some extent in control, uh, you lose that uh, kind of precise curated storytelling, but you then get to explore very different textures. Um, so yes, I'm working in, you know, I have actors and we're filming them and they're playing roles and that is the expression of the story. Um, but the way in which these things are structured uh, makes them inherently different to movies. Um, it's, you know, it almost becomes novelistic. Uh, so uh, I'm constantly being told by my agents and other people that we should come up with a, a noun for this thing, right? That we need a word that describes it. But I think those are usually best left. To, uh, they usually come out organically, right? Um, mm. So it's hard to try and name something yourself. Mm. Well, I'm up for I'm up for working on that. I'm sure we can we can we can figure something out. Uh, well, that's that's fascinating. So, so much of what you do is, I guess, the, the technical aspects of it are, are quite similar to filmmaking. You're you're shooting. You're working with actors. Um, you're editing uh, and post producing. But then it's that structural uh, shift to to the interactivity, and yeah, you know how. I guess what are the um, what are the challenges for for getting this kind of storytelling out there on a wider level? Bandersnatch, everyone knows Bandersnatch, and that came out um, you know over over a, over a year ago now, and uh, that obviously showed one way that it could go. Do you see that as being a potential model for this? Yeah, I think the the streaming platforms and smart TVs, I think, are possibly one of the most exciting destinations to get to uh, if you're making something as I am that is, uh, you know, has a requirement of a certain level of technology. Uh, there were some uh, aborted experiments in the 90s with interactive cinema, actually in movie theaters, where they installed like these little keypads in every seat and people could kind of vote to lead the story in different directions. Um, but there's obviously something uh, very challenging about trying to get into that space. Whereas, yeah, we now have a level of technology in everybody's TVs or set-top boxes or phones that uh, is, you know, the requirement for doing these kinds of experiments. Um, the challenge you have there is, um, you know, in the case of something like Bandersnatch and Netflix, um, although five years ago they were the disruptive force, they're now the, the big slow-moving super tanker. Um, and if they want to do something innovative, they're also worried about the 40% of their users that have an older smart TV. Um, and you know, what does it do to their interface, which is now becoming somewhat mature and there's an expectation. Uh, so you know, it was interesting that with Bandersnatch, I think they used an icon 
that looked like a video game icon to kind of, you know, let people realize what uh, kind of experience this was. Um, I think where I diverge slightly with Bandersnatch is, um, you know, there have been many decades now of experimentation and evolution of interactive storytelling in different forms, going back to those choose your own adventure books and comics through various forms of interactive fiction. And one of the things that people have really struggled with, like the biggest challenge as a storyteller, and you see this in, in kind of more traditional video games as well, is what is the role of the audience if you have a story with a protagonist in it, um, the most popular idea is that the audience is playing the role of the protagonist, they're role playing as the protagonist. Um, but what that's often led to is protagonists who are quite uh, shallow and navigating much more interesting worlds. Um, you know, the first game that I made in this form, her story was a detective story, which wasn't that big a leap because a lot of the more kind of uh, story intense video games usually feature a protagonist that like a kind of Agatha Christie detective is themselves quite a shallow character with a few character ticks arriving into a story that has already happened. The murder has already happened. Uh, the city of Rapture has already fallen. Um, you know, Pompeii has already been destroyed. And then as the player, in the role of essentially a detective, you get to kind of uh, dig through the story. Um, because it's very uh, difficult to figure out the framing of how does that handover work if the player is making choices on behalf of the protagonist. Um, and so with something like Bandersnatch, you see like that's a very traditional form of the choose your own adventure that we would call a gauntlet where you have choices, but there are lots of wrong choices that hit a dead end. Because as a storyteller, you're trying to maneuver people, you know, along this this path that makes sense for the story. Um, where I'm coming at it is giving the audience a different role, um, which is essentially the role they've always had, which is that of an engaged audience. Um, and I've, uh, to, to use a popular phrase, like I've gamified that. Uh, I've looked at what does it mean to be an engaged audience to someone's piece of storytelling and made that something tangible. So as you're experiencing one of my stories, you get to choose where to dig. Like this particular character, this particular thread is interesting. The game player layer we have in there is justifying and making tangible things that are inherent to the form. So, you know, good writing has subtext. Good performance uh, is such that it is interesting to watch someone's face and read through their expression, what is happening inside their head. By making in this into a game experience, I've made that something that you are further compelled to do. So to navigate her story or telling lies, you are asked to scrutinize the footage more than you would if this was just a TV show you're binging on Netflix. You might rewatch clips or stop or pause them or rewind them. Um, in Telling Lies, you have like quite a, a tactile relationship to the actual footage, uh, which feels like I'm bringing the audience closer to the creative process. Um, I think one of the truths that is, is less talked about is just how fluid stories are right up until the point where they're presented to the audience. We, we have this idea that the, uh, you know, the version of The Shining that we all have on DVD is the perfect form of The Shining that kind of emerged from Stanley Kubrick's brain. But if you rewind from that point and look through the editing process and the production and the writing and the conception, you see that there's, there's much more of a sculptural kind of organic shape to that process. Um, and I think traditionally, the reason we have these fixed stories is usually down to broadcast technology. So you have, with the printing press, suddenly you take the oral tradition of storytelling uh, and you look at the, how stories were told through song uh, 
a long, long time ago because the, the song made it easy to memorize these things and to then perform them so these stories could spread. Um, but you have, you know, the idea of, of telling stories around the campfire, uh, which is a somewhat interactive process. The point where you get to the printing press and, uh, you know, popular storytelling being distributed through books, you clearly uh, have to have a fixed form of the story because it needs to be put onto the printing blocks and sent around. Um, and you see that similarly with film and TV where uh, the film needs to be finished, put on film, put in a truck and taken to the, the movie theater or the cinema. Um, so I think what I'm excited about is how digital lets us unpick some of that rigidity. Um, and I think taking like all of the learnings we have from video games of what happens when you give people control exploration, when you let their curiosity be the thing that's driving things, um, then kind of come to play. So I, I guess what you're, uh, one of the things you're doing is liberating the point of view of the, the storytelling or the storyteller and allowing, I guess, allowing in theory for us to make our own cuts of the shining. Yeah, to some extent. I think the there was a famous moment where Roger Ebert uh, pronounced uh, in one of his columns that uh, video games or interactive stories could never truly be art because art requires an author. And his example was uh, if you had a video game Hamlet and the player could choose for Hamlet to murder his uncle in scene one and you wouldn't have a story and you wouldn't have the delicate balance of that great art. Um, whereas what I see as interesting, again, thinking of like the fluidity of how these things are created is, um, allowing people in a way that does feel kind of more novelistic to dig into different areas. So it's, it is a very sculptural concept. You know, we could both go and see the same sculpture and, I could look at it from the front. You could look at it from the behind. We've both got a sense of the sculpture, but we've seen different bits of it. Um, I could spend three hours gazing at it and getting close and taking the whole structure of this thing. Um, and, you know, that would be a different experience, but we'd both have seen the same sculpture. Um, mm -hmm. And something that I was interested in was mixing up, on, especially with telling lies, looking at things like your your kind of uh, your traditional premium TV show. So you take uh, something very, very strong like Breaking Bad and the the form of the TV show as much as that is, uh, you know, one of the, the higher revolved forms uh, of TV storytelling. Um, you have a protagonist, Walter White, and then you have all the other characters uh, that fall in place around him. And what I was interested in was the way audiences reacted to some of those characters. Um, and particularly if you looked at, say, the character of his wife, Skylar, who, like, there was at some point, like, a vocal hate mob online, uh, which, you know, there are all sorts of explanations for. But for me, it was interesting because I felt that Skylar was a more sympathetic character and was not, like, necessarily an underwritten character or underperformed character. But because of the structure of that storytelling, she was by necessity a B character whose job was to stop Walter White doing the cool stuff that the show was about. Um, so, you know, the structure of the storytelling essentially maneuvered certain parts of the audience uh, in a, you know, into a different relationship with her. So part of the conception of Telling Lies was telling uh, a story like that, but trying to uh, disconnect this idea of who is the default protagonist um, and the way it was shot. Um, we had interesting constraints that did that as well. So the whole story was shot as a series of conversations um, over video chat, <laughs> something which has come back to haunt me in recent times. Um, 
And when you watch it, uh, because we have this frame that you are somebody that has uh, stolen secretly recorded footage um, and is now uh, at a later date kind of watching it and searching through it, uh, the constraint of the system is such that you only see one side of the conversation because these things are recorded separately. So, uh, you know, to extend the, the, the Walter White Skyler thing, like any scene uh, with a husband and a wife in it, there is equal screen time to the husband and wife. And because we're shooting this thing um, as video chat, like the, the camera angles, the amount of screen space they get is roughly equivalent. And in watching these conversations, you are jumping between the two sides and sort of switching POV and taking an interest and then further digging into specific plot lines of characters. So it becomes very self-paced, self-curated. Um, and there is this, we did a, an exercise where we had uh, focus groups come in and, and play the game. And at the end of it, we'd ask them to write a couple of paragraphs summarizing the story in their own words. And you saw a lovely split of who people designated as the protagonist of the story, whose story people were describing um, when they wrote these little paragraphs. Um, so for me, that is, um, you know, there is still a, an essential story. The characters are still the characters. There's still the same inherent truth to the storytelling. Um, but we have this ability for people to kind of navigate their own way around it. Um, and, you know, that changes their relationship with the characters. Hmm. I want to come on to business models and, and, and that side of things in a moment, but I'm just curious, I want to follow up on what you've just said there. Do you, do you see then the audience as becoming storytellers in their self? It, it, do you think that's what people are, are doing when they, play your games, films, um, it, are, are, they, are they storytelling or is it, is it more like editing or is it something in between? I think one of the most interesting things about storytelling um, and working on things like this, you are kind of forced to think a lot about what even is storytelling. Um, why do we tell stories? And some of the most interesting stuff for me is the extent to which the act of telling stories is fundamental to how our brains work. Um, the, uh, you know, to get very primal, like why do we even have imaginations? Why can we imagine things in our head that aren't real? Um, and you know, a lot of this is basic survival, like being able to predict things is very important if you are trying not to die. Um, and so a lot of storytelling is hijacking that, tool that we have in our imaginations. Um, and, you know, if we go and see a movie and are so intently uh, suspending our disbelief that we're actually terrified by the on-screen events, that is, is hacking this little evolutionary leap that meant that, you know, if we were walking across the plains uh, way back when and we see the grass rustle, uh, our imaginations might imagine there's a snake moving in the grass and run away and there may or may not have been a snake, but uh, on the off chance there was, you know, our imagination and our ability to be scared by or to kind of treat these imagined ideas as real uh, has saved our lives. So then you look at like the, the spread of civilization, the extent to which storytelling allows us to communicate things, communicate ideas, communicate beliefs. Um, you know, it's an inherent part of how we process the world. And I think the you know part of when i first made her story a lot of that came from thinking about how much more personal a story becomes when you give more over to the audience's imagination um so you know it's inherent in cinema that the cut that editing gives the storytelling its power um if you uh, just filmed every single thing that happened from a a wide angle that could capture everything in a scene, um, that would be a lot less interesting, right? That's like filmed plays, like some of the early cinema. Um, but seeing a character's expression as they react to something you're not seeing off screen, like that's fundamental to thrillers and to horror because our imagination is having to fill that blank. And I think what 
how story and telling lies are all about is when we, we have this facility because of the interactivity, because of digital to play more in this space, what happens when we give people the little pieces of story, when we give them uh, you know, one half of the story and they can create the rest, like painting in this negative space um, is very easy to do because we have such evolved storytelling brains. And I think in the case of her story, a lot of people were, you know, when that game came out, a true crime was blowing up um, and, and, you know, police stories, detective stories, obviously evergreen. Um, and people were asking me, like, how can you give so much control over to the audience? Won't they ruin the story? And what I pointed to was actually kind of the opposite in that if, if I'm writing a linear cop show now, the audience you have in 2020 is so much more sophisticated than any audience that has ever existed. Um, if you were making a TV show in the 1950s, uh, you would probably have a single linear story. Uh, the question of who are the good guys and bad guys would be very straightforward. Um, the pacing of it would be much slower. The camera editing would be much slower. Uh, the twist would probably be uh, extremely obvious to us now because we've now seen so many movies and TV shows, adverts, comic books, video games, tweets, you know, the volume of content that you have this audience that is extremely sophisticated, extremely educated on the tropes of the different genres. And so trying to write something traditional and linear is very hard because how do you surprise this audience that is actually cleverer than you? Um, especially when they come together online, uh, the hive mind is even cleverer than you. Um, and so what her story showed was rather than having to fight against the education of the audience, if you actually use that as a tool and say, well, look, if they know storytelling inside out, if they have all these great instincts and kind of awareness, then we can bring them closer into the process. So yeah, I think when someone is playing one of my games, they are playing part of the role of storyteller. But I think that is true uh, whatever medium you're dealing with. And I think the, the difference is just the level of awareness and the extent to which we're actually kind of weaponizing that. You're listening to the Future of Film podcast with me, Alex Stoltz, and I'm in conversation with Sam Barlow. If you want to find out more about Sam or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. Tell me a bit about the, the business model you're working in and how, how much does that shape the end content or this, or this form that you're developing? Yeah, I think if, if you look back, it's a combination of business model and technology are the biggest constraints and considerations in trying to make these things um, and their continued existence. Uh, so her story itself came about because I worked in traditional video games for a long time and pre-digital that meant uh, a publisher, I guess working in a similar way to a big movie studio would green light an idea and you would then work for them to go make this thing. And at the end of it, it would be you know printed onto discs and shipped to warehouses and then sold in, in very specific video game stores in the same way that, you know, a, a theatrical movie only exists if there's a cinema that's going to play it. Uh, so the trickle down of that was if you were making a game, you were really making a game for the publisher who was making a game for the regional sales manager of GameStop because they would have to buy an inventory. They would have to invest in this project before it was finished. Um, so you were usually aiming for a reasonably broad audience. Um, there was an expectation in terms of how long a video game might be, how much value for money would be involved. Uh, you would need to make sure it was in a very specific genre so it can be communicated. Who will buy this? Um, as soon as digital became cemented with things like uh, Valve Steam Store, things like the uh, Apple App Store. That kind of was a huge game changer um, because it allowed me to independently make her story 
and distribute it um, and reap all the rewards myself directly um, and reach an audience. So I think in the first four days of her story being released, and this was without a marketing budget, um, you know, with a game essentially coming out of nowhere, as far as a lot of people are concerned, uh, you know, we had like 32 million people on the store page actually, you know, reading about this thing and engaging in it. Um, and, you know, that kind of reach. And then if you think of how many people have an iPhone in their pocket, you know, the reach of those stores meant that you could make something reasonably niche um, and still find a huge number of people. Well, I remember looking at the, um, the heat map of like which countries had purchased the game. And I think it was, it was Antarctica was the only place where we hadn't sold a single copy because, you know, the, the reach is truly global um, in a way that's slightly kind of hard to fathom. So that was really cool. And I remember, you know, with her story essentially being like a super low budget indie, uh, if you were to, you know, have a film equivalent, reading about some of the, the budgets and box office of films that in my mind were like big critical successes um, and realizing that, uh, you know, they'd only made a couple of million dollars and then equating that to how much money you can make from a super low budget video game with that reach, you know, the, that, at that scale, the economics are very interesting. Um, obviously, as you ramp up, in uh, you know production values, um, and then you start to you know talk about talent costs. Um, you always have like an interesting conversation, especially with agents who either hear video game and think "cha ching," Fortnite just made ten billion dollars or whatever, um, or hear video game and just think this is uh, so alien, like this is not for my client. Um, but yeah, I think the, the digital thing has been super useful and at that scale, um, really great. The thing I was interested in doing was, was her story was such a hit. And one of the most exciting things for me was that it found an audience that was not the audience that was going into GameStop and buying $40 video games. Uh, it was a, a broader, uh, more, comprehen more comprehensive slice of the market. Um, and, you know, the question for me was like, where to go next? Like, how do we grow this? Um, you know, as we're seeing, uh, you know, video games become more mainstream. We're seeing traditional TV viewing habits shift over to the streaming platforms, um, trying to figure out where to go next. And I think with Telling Lies, when we started developing that in, um, 2016 or 17, it was still the case then that, uh, in terms of where is the technology required to run this thing? Um, and what is the business model? Um, the fact that we could charge $20 a piece for telling lies and not have to worry about the technology by still calling it a video game. Um, I think, you know, meant that that was what we kind of continue to focus on with telling lies. Um, but I think, you know, moving forward, um, we even, you know, video games are starting to copy the subscription model, um, which we're seeing in other media, right? So uh, increasingly, if you're making a low to medium budget movie, the economics are completely different now. You're not, you're not necessarily able to take that risk against, you know, unbounded rewards because you're not necessarily going to get a percentage of the back end. Um, you know, if you're selling it to a Netflix, you might get a flat fee, some kind of kicker if you have, you know, that kind of appeal. But um, generally the ceiling is being constrained by these platform holders. Um, and that is where increasingly we're going to get our content, whether that's a Disney or a Netflix or an HBO or whatever. Um, and we, we're starting to see that uh, with video games. So, um, you know, that's going to start to shift the metrics. Brilliant. I mean, I, well, it's not brilliant for change, but it was fascinating to hear 
your journey with with her story and i think that having that level what it what it sounds like level of control um over the distribution over a, a global release is kind of crazy for to, to to think like you say to equate it to what an independent film might have um in in that respect and it's interesting to hear you say to draw parallels on the subscription side because that is definitely having a big impact on on film clearly but in terms of the what it means to be a producer in film mm increasingly it's turning from a, a you know a, a, an entrepreneur or business to being more like you know and this is generalizing heavily but there's there's a danger everyone becomes a servicer to the the streaming platform you know and so the you, you don't have those those opportunities like you say to 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 really take a risk and to really um you know be rewarded for that risk yeah that's just it's interesting to draw that parallel so i i want to change tack slightly and to ask a little bit about the the style we use for for telling lies uh because we're we're coming you know we're in the middle of the uh the the pandemic in 2020 and there's a lot of thought about uh, remote filming or uh and, and that side of things Telling Lies was was shot a lot from point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, is is that like is there, is there an answer there for people to unlock? You know, in terms of reemerging from, to filmmaking at this time, and what and what do you think about that style or technique? Are you, um, uh, yeah, what, what do you think about that style or technique? Yeah, so the idea of Telling Lies taking place entirely through uh, essentially in the fiction people's webcams um, something that came out of came from the story so I'd been interested in a long time in digging into uh, some of these real life cases where law enforcement agencies had infiltrated people's private lives um, to a very strong extent in terms of going undercover and starting romantic relationships with people. Um, and I was interested in that from the perspective of, uh, exp- you know, expanding that to the question of any relationship and like the extent to which we know people. But for me being taken with, uh, what uh, a terrible violation this was, um, and at the same time, or a little bit after we had all of the Snowden revelations that came out uh, in the 2010s. Um, and so at some point I kind of equated this, this huge shift, uh, you know, all these uh, Fourth Amendment rights we have in terms of our property and our privacy and the extent to which technology had eroded those. So, you know, the fact that we were all going to sleep every night with our phones by our bed, with a microphone and a camera on them, and uh, how easy it's been for companies and government to justify snooping on these devices. Whereas, you know, you wouldn't let an FBI agent uh, sit behind your wardrobe and, and spy on you, right? That, that would, would, would seem obscene, but the fact that people are snooping on all of our video chat and traffic and all our digital stuff uh, is something that has, has happened gradually and continually. Um, so at that point, sorry, I was like, sorry, okay. Sorry, um, the, the the line broke up a little bit there. Just just oh, okay. as you were saying um, about uh, you wouldn't let the FBI okay. snoop. Do you mind starting yep. from there? Um, yeah, you wouldn't let uh, a, a physical FBI agent come into your house and sit in your wardrobe and snoop on your bedroom, but. Um, because these things are digital and invisible, essentially, um, you know, there has been this slow encroachment, uh, invading the privacy of all these different elements. So knowing that that was this, there was this synergy between these two ideas and and having this idea of, uh, an entire experience that, uh, exists through snooping on private conversations. Um, there was then the question of, 
what does that look like? And I went and I looked at, you know, there was obviously an explosion in found footage movies that happened a while back. There, There is increasingly, um, you know, in pre-COVID, people have investigated inserting the kind of texture of FaceTime into more conventional stories. I think, you know, most primetime sitcoms have had at least one FaceTime episode or, or a little set piece. Um, so I went and looked at the ones I thought had done a good job um, and the ones that hadn't and and what how to do this thing authentically. Um, and it all came down to really, for me, was the body language and the performance. Um, it's increasingly very used to these setups now. So uh, it was easy to see when an actor was pretending to be FaceTiming with a conventional camera um, versus the actual real deal. Um, so we invested a lot of effort into coming up with a camera rig that was portable and could be manipulated by the actors in place of a phone or a laptop. Um, and then in terms of the shooting, um, you know, we had what was essentially, uh, you know, a indie movie cast and crew um, and, and that kind of scale of production. But uh, where we were shooting on location, uh, the individual sets were, you know, had to be dressed 360 degrees. Uh, we realized early on that shooting on a, a, a soundstage would be ideal from a logistical standpoint. But uh, if you're on a set that only has three walls and half a roof, um, the actor is limited to where they can point the camera. Um, and, you know, in this scenario, you are asking the talent to be camera operators. Um, and the more they can naturally manipulate this thing, the more authentic it feels. So a big part of blocking these scenes was kind of really interrogating how would you take this call uh, as the scene evolves, how is that going to change how you're standing or sitting? Uh, uh, you know, you have the, the fluidity that a shot can start as a low angle shot and move to a close up and then go to a high angle shot and kind of radically alter the feeling of a scene. Um, and a lot of that comes about organically. Uh, so we invested a lot in having these rigs that would allow us to do that, having sets that were fully dressed with, you know, 99% practical lighting um, so that we had that freedom. Um, you know, the audio was recorded uh, with earwigs rather than with boom mics. Um, and so there was, yeah, there was a lot of effort put into making it look like we hadn't put any effort in. Um, so I think that the interesting thing has been during this, crisis uh people have got in touch and have said oh we're really interested in still creating content uh obviously the restrictions are such that um it has occurred to us we could create shows that are essentially uh either you know in fiction video chat or or using some of the constraints of video chat um because that is all we can do um and yeah, part of that conversation has been me saying, well, uh, the, you know, to do this in a certain way, there is still lots of effort. Uh, you could either go, you know, you could be fully authentic and we've seen some very fun executions of that, of, you know, people doing live readings or kind of, you know, fun little chat show things within their home Zoom camera setups and stuff. But um, yeah, you know, we... You know, we as we had this interesting balance that we were kind of constantly interrogating as we were shooting, which was, uh, you know, fully authentic webcam where everything looks pretty flat um, and is is authentically dull, uh, all the way up to examples of uh, over produced, overlit, overgraded. Um, fake webcam footage that just doesn't look real um, because it looks too much like uh, a beautiful movie. And we were trying to find this sweet spot where we were still doing lots of production design and the color palettes were carefully constrained um, and the lighting was there to enhance things, 
as best as possible, um, but you know, uh, still had a level of, of kind of natural feel to it. So I think those, um, yeah, I think that there are lots of interesting challenges with shooting in this way. And like I said, the, the conception was to play within the constraints. Um, I equated it to uh, like a Shakespearean war play um, where you very rarely see the battles because you can't mount a gigantic battle on stage. So you would have a character running onto the stage wounded and then tell of the battle that they've just escaped um, and have like a very human moment. And you really get the sense of the battle from their reaction to it. Um, and that's kind of the mode of storytelling uh, in telling lies. It's some big plot events, you know, this genre of the espionage thriller. If this was a movie, you would be seeing all the A plot elements on screen, lots of action. Um, whereas the telling lies version is to focus on the effects of those A plot moments on the characters um, and actually getting more intimate with them, um, really kind of seeing inside their heads and inferring lots of things. So, yes, yeah, definitely wouldn't be the case that you could uh, take a normal story and just shoot it in this way. I think you, you really have to kind of think about what happens when you're shifting uh, your POV to this more intimate um, place. Mm. Definitely not a, a silver bullet then for <laughs> the film industry at this point. Sam, what would be your advice to an emerging storyteller? Uh, and I guess the follow-up question to that or... The, the second part of that question is wh what does it look like to have a sustainable career as a storyteller right now? How do you, how do you see that? Uh, it's, it's hard to give people advice. Uh, I, I think what has always led me has been uh, an appreciation of the fundamentals of storytelling. Um, and I think whenever any piece of new technology comes along, there is a moment where you can kind of ride on the gimmick, um, where you can pretend that this time the rules of storytelling are going to change. Um, but I think all storytelling comes down to some fundamentals. Uh, and some of those are structural, um, you know, the core values of, you know, being driven by the characters, um, of, of trying to be as authentic as possible is still prime. So I think spending as much time on those elements, grounding yourself in appreciation for story. Um, one of the things that I tried to push, which was uh, less of an emphasis in the traditional production model of how you'd make a video game was like the upfront research and breaking of a story, which, you know, obviously in film and TV, uh, especially in TV, like there is a huge upfront investment uh, in story creation. Um, and for me, that is still kind of golden. Um, in terms of the business aspects, um, I certainly uh, benefited from the entrepreneurial uh, moment that we had, you know, probably existed over the last 10 years uh, because of digital the fact that we could go out there and do things ourselves. Um, there's definitely this shift just because of the sheer volume of content now. Um, there is this shift towards platforms, which kind of changes things. Um, but I think we're, we're still in a moment, and especially, I, I would say like the last five years, every year I've been told, this is the year where interactive storytelling is going to take on a mainstream level, whether that was Soderbergh's Mosaic or Bandersnatch or kind of other examples. Um, and every single decision maker in Hollywood knows they have to do this thing. Uh, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, fun meetings with people because they know their business is shifting to digital. They look at what happened with the music industry. They look at what with the publishing industry and they know that, the will at some point, uh, someone will crack this thing in a, in a big way. Um, and just to look at how technology has transformed everything else we do. Uh, if I want to 
order takeout. If I want to walk from A to B, the device gives me this personalized, rich uh, experience that knows me, knows my tastes, um, and is kind of interactive at every step of the way. So, so everyone knows this is going to happen at some point with how we consume our visual storytelling. Um, and, you know, we're incrementally moving that way. You know, Netflix has personalized the curation process and you know, personalized how we choose what to watch or how Netflix chooses what to make in some cases. Um, but everyone is trying to figure out this next step. And most of the people with the power uh, have no idea because this is alien to them. Uh, as it always is. Um, so right now there is still this wonderful opportunity. Um, it, it is essentially a gold rush, but no one knows where or what, even what the gold is. Um, so I think, you know, if you are starting out now, uh, it is absolutely a great time to be there at the coal face, figuring out what this thing is. Um, and you know, to get in amongst it. Um, what exactly success looks like is, you know, going to be very different in different cases, but um, it's, it's hard to think of a better time to be playing in this space because there is just the ubiquity of the technology now, um, the, uh, the readiness of the audience. You know, we have an audience that is now primed. Uh, you know, when I was selling people her story, you know, that was kind of the first time my mother could play her story because she had a phone and she was now up to speed on using a phone and a touchscreen interface. Um, you know, that ubiquity and the, uh, the education that you have and the literacy you have in terms of the technology has never been greater. Um, so we are, we are primed to do something very interesting in this space. Um, and, you know, coming to this with a fresh outlook um, would be super useful. So it's definitely, it's, we continue to move into uncharted waters. Uh, the, it's, it's been interesting. A lot of what dictated a career in the video games industry um, and made that slightly scary uh, in terms of every four or so years, you'd have a new hardware cycle, uh, you know, working in a medium that was changing overnight. So you might make the hit game of 1995, but in five years time, it's practically unwatchable. Like, you know, to, to play a game of 10, 20 years ago, um, it, it's a very sobering experience. Um, so we were always, you know, to some extent jealous of the more mature art forms. Um, I remember there was a great piece uh, in one of the movie magazines where they talked about how the the model the financial model of filmmaking was to some extent built around the predictability in that you would have a screenplay and i remember uh, i briefly dealt with a film finance company that uh, had an unbroken record of investing in movies and making money for their investors the, the people that were putting up the money um, because no matter what went wrong on a movie they could pull the director, parachute a new director, get the thing shot, put it out on DVD, sell the TV rights, and kind of cover their basis. And on aggregate, they made money. Um, in, in video games, because we are always dealing with technology, because it's a process that can always be iterated, um, you know, you can change the color of a character's hat an infinite number of times. There's nothing that is ever fixed. Um, that was always, you know, the, the reason that video games would always run two years late and always end up costing twice as much money as they were supposed to cost. Um, whereas you'd look at movies and you would have a, a screenplay that people had read and decided was a great screenplay. And then you would, you know, uh, Dino De Laurentiis said like the art of filmmaking is the producer. Uh, and it's it's just choosing the right individuals to go make this thing. Um, but, you know, you would have a screenplay, the line producer can come in and make a reasonably accurate prediction of how much this thing is going to cost. And then you go out and shoot it. And at some point you finish shooting everything. And then you have the monumental task of editing it 
and creating something great in that process. And I remember reading this article about how the advent of the CGI blockbuster had fundamentally broken the beauty of this because you could continually tweak. And it wasn't a case of simply showing up for two months, shooting a movie and leaving because there were multiple teams shooting multiple bits. And the thing you're shooting with the actors is only 10% of the movie because everything else is in green screen. Some of the characters aren't even real. Um, and because it's now a technology focused business, you're in the same problem of overnight technology changing, uh, the CGI increasing, uh, of things being attempted that have not been done before. Um, and you know, that started to translate to movies running late or, uh, the, the classic video game move of, uh, studio throwing 20 CGI companies at a movie to get it finished on time. Um, all these kind of painful aspects, uh, of dealing with technology had kind of spread, uh, to filmmaking. Um, so. Yeah. And, and it's all, it's all, all changing again as well with real time game tools coming into film and yeah. I suppose that's that's <laughs> it's film is adopting the the benefits of games and maybe uh, some of the the challenges too sam uh, lastly i'd like to just to ask your thoughts on the future of film i think for me the exciting thing about the future of film is is dissolving these boundaries. So we already are trying to solve what is the difference between a Netflix show and a movie? At what point does a movie stop being a movie and become a limited series? Um, we had the fun of everybody nominating David Lynch's Twin Peaks as the movie of the year as an 18 hour movie um, a little while back. Um, and so I, we clearly have already passed the point where the container that we are so used to, like how many screenwriting books have been written saying this has to happen on this page, this has to happen on this page, like that very rigid idea of the container for a movie. I think we've already passed that point uh, where what we call movies and TV, telling a story through film performance, like has already become a different thing. Um, I think you look at something like Quibi, the biggest failing I think of their offering is that they built a service around a new container, um, but jammed in old stuff. You know, they took a 90 page screenplay and chopped it into 10 minute pieces without thinking, how does that change the viewing experience? How does having these smaller pieces create, you know, in the case of her story, chopping a story up into small pieces created magic because we elevated the space between those pieces. Um, by having smaller pieces, we allowed them to be shuffled. We increased the frequency that the viewer got to actually have anything interesting to say about this stuff. Um, so I think that, for me, is the opportunity and the challenge, is to take that step of throwing away the container of what is a movie and then go, well, what is interesting about filmmaking now uh are there interesting ways that people can actually navigate the experience of this story other than just pressing play and sitting back um you know what is interesting about those um and i think uh you know i think back to uh some of the pronouncements say uh like i remember peter greenaway talking about film as being a medium that was still a long way off actually arriving, um, that we were still essentially filming words. We were still essentially telling stories that were literary material um, filmed for the screen. Um, and, you know, he did lots of playful experiments uh, with the structure um, that forced viewers to kind of uh, dig into what they're seeing on the screen and, and in a kind of playful way, um, but we're still bounded by the fact that you, you just press play and sat back. Um, so I think that for me is this exciting new territory. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing crude attempts to do something with this. So, you know, 
essentially stopping or at least idling a story to print text up on the screen that says, should you go left or go right, um, is, is a very crude way of playing with this. And I think there are, um, there are more sophisticated ways we can kind of discover. Um, I noticed that, uh, uh, another case in point, I think Bandersnatch was up for, uh, was it the Emmy for TV movie? Um, and the, the history of that award was amazing because the episodes of Black Mirror had previously won uh, the Emmy for best TV movie. And there was some complaints about that because this was an anthology show. And I think one of the award-winning episodes uh, was actually reasonably short. Um, it, it wasn't like that movie length. So, you know, there were all these people getting upset about the definition of the container. Um, so they changed the requirements for that Emmy to require a 90 minute runtime so that, you know, these shorter episodes of TV would not count as movies. And then along comes Bandersnatch and gets nominated for it. And I would love to have seen the discussions behind the scenes where they're like, well, what even is the runtime of Bandersnatch? Like, are we judging the minimum time? What even counts as an ending there? Like, are we talking about the total time? Um, so there's clearly like an industry that is having these huge growing pains with defining the container. Um, but I think, yeah, that to me is the challenge. It's like throw away that container. Um, what does that do to how you tell stories? Profound Thoughts there from writer-director Sam Barlow, recorded earlier this year, 2020. If you want to find out more about Sam or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.